and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Women, Wellness, Woo and Vaginas by Dr. Alice Howarth. It was first broadcast on Thursday the 27th of April 2023. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you very much and what a lovely introduction. Um, you might notice, uh, we'll see how quickly the slides come up on the screen, you might notice that I've snuck in an additional word into my title. So when I pitched the talk to Skeptics in the Pub Online, I told them I was going to talk about women, I was going to talk about wellness, I was going to talk about woo. And of course it's me, so I'm going to talk about vaginas as well. I've just snuck that in there at the end because actually I think it's quite a nice way to, to talk about some of the topics we're going to talk about looking through a particular lens. But let's start off with a disclaimer. First of all, I am not a medical doctor. Um, Clea very kindly introduced me as Dr. Alice Howarth, so I want to make very clear that I am not that kind of doctor, I am not medically qualified, and you should never take medical advice from me or anybody who isn't your personal doctor. If you want to have medical advice that is specific to you, you should be speaking to your personal doctor who knows your personal cases. Although I might uh, show you that sometimes that's not the best place to get advice either. So firstly, for those who don't really know who I am, um, I wanted to introduce myself. As Cleo said, um, I do lots and lots of different things. Um, I'm a deputy editor at The Skeptic magazine. I am a podcaster at Skeptics with a K. I'm part of the Most Diverse Skeptic Society. I do public speaking. I do panels. I do events. I do all sorts of different things that, that involve engaging with people about different topics. But I'm also particularly interested through this sceptical lens and, and through Skeptics with a K in particular in kind of more sceptical investigations. So I'm more likely to take products that have particular claims or, or therapies or interventions that have particular claims and try to see if the evidence stacks up around these claims. And I've been doing this as part of Skeptics with a K and the Mercy Skeptic Society for a really long time now. I'm almost 10 years on the podcast, um, which means I've been encountering all sorts of bullshit for a really long time. Um, I'm also a disabled person. Um, so I have uh, multiple disabilities, as many people who have disabilities uh, do. Uh, often there are comorbidities that come part and, part and parcel of having those, those uh, conditions. So just very briefly to talk about the disability, definition of disability under the Equality Act. So this, uh, you are disabled under the Equality Act if you have a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do daily activities. So that's just the legal definition for your employers. So anybody who employs somebody has to consider disability under the definition of the Equality Act. Um, Obviously, people can define as disabled under lots of different, for lots of different reasons in lots of different circumstances. But in terms of the actual Equality Act and making sure that your protected characteristics are taken care of in employment and other, other cases where um, your protected characteristics need to be considered, that's the definition of disability. And hopefully you can see from that that actually that's quite a broad um, description. So there are many people with lots of different conditions who can identify as having a disability that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on their ability to do normal daily activities, including people like me who 
don't look disabled. There are many people who, who have invisible disabilities or disabilities that are only visible some of the time and you would not know it to look at them that they have a disability, that they are modifying their life on a daily basis. And actually, disability in England and Wales is really, really common. So in 2021, across both England and Wales, there were 17.8% uh, of people were considered disabled. That was actually a bit lower than in 2011, where it was 19.5% of people. So you're looking at roughly 20% of people in England and Wales have some form of disability. Now, as I say, that went down a little bit in 2021, but you will know that, that things have changed between 2021 and 2023, as many things have changed between 2021 and 2023. Um, and one of those things is that uh, we, we suspect that disability is on the rise uh, in our population. So this is an example um, just from looking at people who are economically inactive, so people who are not earning um, anything financially. And if you look at those yellow bars um, across the period from August 2020 up towards November 2022, those bars are getting bigger. There are more people in this group, and this group is people who are not working because they are long-term sick. They have some condition that prevents them from working. So we know that disability is on the rise. We suspect that's partly due to long COVID, that may be due to other reasons, um, but we know that, you know, that there's at least 20% of our population are disabled. This affects an awful lot of people. But there are other things that we can consider here. Um, and so I'm going to define some terms. Firstly, I'm going to talk about chronic illness. So chronic illness is a long lasting health concern. This can be something that really doesn't significantly affect your daily life. This can be things that it's just something you need to monitor. And as long as it's monitored and is treated in the right way, you live a perfectly normal, ordinary life. Some people with asthma might have a chronic illness but not have a disability because they don't have a long-term substantial impact on their ability to do with daily tasks. Similarly, some people with asthma will have a disability, are disabled by their condition, and that will affect them. So that the fact that you have a chronic illness does not necessarily mean that you have a disability. The fact that you're disabled doesn't necessarily mean that you have a chronic illness, um, but the two can often go hand in hand. And I will flip and switch between the two terms um, as and when it's appropriate. So I want to start just by talking a little bit about medical bias. So first, I want to talk about medical bias um, in disability. And, and this, this is where this idea of, of chronic illness can come into play. Chronic illnesses can be things like diabetes and cancer and, and anything that is a long lasting health concern. But it can also uh, be conditions that are a little bit more vague, a little bit more um, self-described a little bit more um hard to define and this can be things like me and chronic fatigue syndrome it can be things like depression there can be conditions where it's very subjective and the person's experience is what is what we measure when we when we identify that they have a a long-term health condition so this study from the university of oxford showed that um there are negative beliefs from medical professionals for some medical conditions. They found that uh, there was evidence for negative beliefs towards some medical conditions and that beliefs were disproportionately negative when comparing conditions of similar severity and prevalence. So things like ME, 
chronic fatigue syndrome, depression and Lyme disease were discussed with more negative language than the other diseases in the set. And this is a thing that people with certain types of conditions find that they experience quite a lot and report experiencing quite a lot. Um, Lyme disease is of particular interest to skeptics, I'm sure, and some of you might, that might raise your alarm bells a little bit. Um, I'm not going to talk about Lyme disease at all in this um, talk, but if anybody wants to talk more about the difference between Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease, um, perhaps we can talk about that uh, in the Q&A. But the, the majority of my talk is going to be about how things affect women. So let's go back to some, some more terms, um, because I think these are important. I'm going to be talking about bias that affects women, but I'm also going to be talking about bias that affects people with particular anatomical parts. So if I use the term women, I am usually going to be talking about all women, cis, cis trans, non-binary people who are perceived or engaged with society as a woman, somebody who is going to be subject to bias because society sees them as a woman. Um, and these are the kind of biases that I'm going to talk about in those cases. But there are other cases where I'm going to be talking about um, things that affect specifically people with a uterus or people with um, a cervix or people with particular anatomical parts. And I will try to make it clear when I'm talking about the different times. I will make slip ups because we all get lazy with our language sometimes, especially when we're speaking to an audience. Um, but I will try to distinguish when I'm talking about which. Of course, there is an extra complication here because there are many people who are treated differently because of their anatomical parts, because those anatomical parts are typically associated with a particular gender. So many of the things I'm going to talk about, for example, I'm going to talk about endometriosis. Some of the stigma and bias is because it's perceived as a condition that affects women and does predominantly affect women, but does not exclusively protect, uh, affect women. And so there are going to be cases where those things interplay, where gender bias is going to be affecting the experience of people with particular anatomical parts, regardless of which gender they, um, which gender they are. So with the definitions um, out of the way, let's move on to women and medical bias. So um, this is a bunch of statistics that I think are, for me, are just completely shocking um, that women are more likely to be given a sedative than pain relief for pay, pain than men are. Um, women are half as likely to be given pain relief for coronary bypass than men are. Women are seven times more likely to be misdiagnosed when having a heart attack. 70% of people with chronic pain are women. But 80% of the studies we do on chronic pain are either in, in men or in male mice. 70% of people with chronic pain are women. Um, men wait 49 uh, minutes for acute abdominal pain relief in hospital, whereas women wait 65 minutes um, for pain relief in hospital. And women are 13 to 25% less likely to be given opioids when in pain than men. So I'm talking specifically about pain here. And this is this is something that's really important for women because a big proportion of the people with chronic pain um, in the world are women. We know that this affects women particularly. Um, but we're not given pain relief. And there are dozens of studies that look at why that might be and that, that people often think that women don't experience pain in the same way, are not as... Um, resilient to pain as men are, when in fact other studies show that the opposite is true, that sometimes women have a better pain threshold than men do. 
Now, this isn't unique to women. There are all sorts of marginalised people who are particularly affected by this. And in, in particular, black people are massively affected by perceptions of how they react to pain. And that's not going to be the focus of my talk. That's that's not my area to talk on. Um, but it is important to recognise that this affects a, a whole bunch of marginalised people. Um, and it is a big problem within our healthcare system. So I'm going to talk about some examples of where, where these uh, biases can affect how women are treated within the medical system. Um, so the first is this lovely, light, fluffy example. Do you have a depressed vagina? Um, th these were some news uh, articles that circulated a few years ago. Depressed vagina is a real thing and many women are suffering from it. Um, vulvodynia is a depressed vagina, the reason you find sex painful. And when I first sp spotted these, I was kind of puzzled where this had come from because I'd heard of vulvodynia before, but I had never heard of anybody referring to it as depressed. I had no idea how anybody could come to this idea. Vulvodynia is just pain of the vulva. Um, I don't understand where you would get to the idea of depression. It turns out, I did some digging, and it turns out that this circulates every every few years, usually related to Sex in the City. So there's a scene in, in an episode of Sex in the City um, that where one of the uh, women has exper is experiencing vulvodynia and she sees her gynecologist and they prescribe to her an antidepressant, which antidepressants are frequently prescribed, certain types of antidepressants are frequently described for pain relief. They can act as a pain modifier, affect how our nerves interact with pain, and they can be useful therapies for people who have particular pain conditions. So this leads to the, to the comment, what, your vagina's depressed? Um, in the episode, and uh, this is where this idea that vulvodynia is a depressed vagina apparently seems to come from. So what is vulvodynia? Vulvodynia is, as I say, pain of the vulva, and it can be very localised. They do these uh, cotton, bud, cotton swab tests where they will poke different areas to see if you have specific pain in specific areas. Um, it can be very, very localised, uh, or it can be very generalised. It can be spontaneous, so that means you experience it just generally, regardless of any particular uh, provocation, or it can be provoked. So this is where the, the Q-tip test comes in, the cotton swab test. Um, and it can be, it can range from being a relatively mild pain that is just makes penetrative sex or using tampons a little bit uncomfortable, but not too bad. Um, or it can be completely debilitating. It can make um, penetrative sex or penetration with any sort of uh, item, finger, toy, anything um, impossible for, the, for a sufferer. Or it can make even wearing certain clothes really difficult or riding a bicycle really difficult because of the pain that that causes. So this can range from a, a reasonably mild condition to, a, to an extremely debilitating, very severe condition, depending on the person. There was a study um, a few years ago that looked at the prevalence of vulvodynia and they surveyed two and a half thousand women and they looked at, um, and in this case they will have almost certainly been uh, surveying only cis women as many many um, surveys often do, um, and they or they will not have even uh, identified um, any further than that. And they found that 8.3% of people had a current case of vulvodynia, and that 18% of people had a past case of vulvodynia. Um, now, this is massive. This is a huge proportion of the population that eight, almost 
of people have vulvodynia at any given moment and almost 20% have had vulvodynia at some point in their life this is really really common and it's also but it's also a condition that not a lot of people have heard of that it's not commonly talked about apart from in that sex in the city episode and in fact only 60% of people with symptoms of vulvodynia seek treatment that can be for lots of reasons that might be because they don't know that it's something that can, that they can talk about. It might be something that they're embarrassed to talk about. Um, it might be something that they think they should just kind of put up with it and, and get on with it and manage with what they've got. They might um, be scared that it might mean something more significant. Of the people who do go and seek treatment, 40% of those are never diagnosed. This is not an uncommon condition. If you're referred for vulval pain, you should see a gynecologist and a gynecologist should be able to diagnose it relatively quickly. But 40% of the people who seek treatment are never diagnosed. We don't really know what causes it. The causes are only partially understood, which is common with a lot of conditions that affect pain. And there's no standard care protocol for people with vulvodynia. But more than that, it's not massively researched. So if we compare it to another condition that affects people's ability to have sex, that is that affects a large proportion of the population, slightly more in this case. And um, so I'm going to compare vulvodynia and erectile dysfunction, two conditions that affects people affect people's ability to have sex, and um, two conditions that are reasonably common. Um, erectile dysfunction is about 20% of the population at younger ages. It does get up to about 50% once you get over the age of 50. So it is a little bit more common, but the number of papers published for vulvodynia is hovering around the 500 per year. And the number of publications for erectile dysfunction is hovering around 10,000 per year. So, yes, it's a bit more common, but it is not that orders of magnitude more common. Um, and yet we're just not researching vulvodynia. That's not to say we shouldn't be researching erectile dysfunction. It is a condition that affects people's um, ability to have sex and to have happy, fulfilling uh, relationships if, the, if sex is something that is important to them. Um, and it can uh, be an underlying symptom of other serious conditions. It's important to research it, but it's also important to research vulvodynia, things that affect people with vulvas. So my next example is um, endometriosis. Um, endometriosis, again, is a super common condition. This affects 10% of cis women. Um, it affects 20 to 50% of women with infertility and um, 71 to 87% of women with chronic pelvic pain. So this is a, a really common condition. And this causes quite significant symptoms for people with the condition. So you can have um, pelvic pain around the uh, lower tummy or back, which can flare up around your period. Period pain that is so debilitating, it can stop you doing your normal activities pain during or after sex, um, pain when using the bathroom during your period, um, feeling sick, constipated diarrhea or blood in your pee uh, during your period and uh, difficulty getting pregnant. Um, it can cause really quite significant pain and quite significant bleeding as well. So people can have very, very heavy periods that can make it hard to get out and about because they need to change their, their tampons or uh, pads really regularly. It can have a massive effect on people's lives. Again, it can be relatively mild. It can be something that can, can be lived with and can be managed, but it can also be completely debilitating. This, the cause of this, we know the cause of this, is that um, there are growths of the endometrial tissue outside of the uterus. So instead of just growing in the lining of the womb on the lining of the womb, we're getting the growth of this endometrial 
uh, tissue in lots of different areas. So that can be on the surface of the bladder, on the surface of the rectum. It can be all sorts of different places and it can cause lots of significant problems when you go through your period and that tissue then starts to react to the hormones in your body. And you might think, okay, well, maybe we don't research these conditions because they're relatively new. But we've known about endometriosis basically forever. Um, so this is this is taken from the Hippocratic Corpus um, that talked about several gynecological symptoms that uh, historians believe really are uh, related to endometriosis. So they say in this um, piece from 460 to 370 BCE, the menses sometimes suddenly appear abundantly at the end of three months in clots of black blood resembling flesh, sometimes ulcers of the uterus ensue requiring much attention. And this is very common with endometriosis. Many people with endometriosis have uh, irregular periods that might go off take a few months to come. They're more prone to having clotting, significant clotting in their bleeds. Um, and there can be these adhesions and things that grow in, in places that, sh that sh they shouldn't be as the tissue grows in different places and kind of locks up together. Similar conditions are described throughout every century since then in many cultures, and it was microscopically described in 1860. So endometriosis is a condition we have known about for a really long time. And yet... It takes eight years on average from onset of symptoms to receiving a diagnosis. And this, this hasn't changed in the last decade. Um, many patients see their doctors over 10 times. Almost 60% of patients visit their GP over 10 times. 21% of patients visit doctors in hospital 10 times or more. And 53% went to A&E. 27% went to A&E three or more times before they were diagnosed. So this is, this is a really significant problem. But you might think, okay, these are complicated conditions. People with uteruses and vaginas are just, they have a really awkward anatomy and they're just really complicated. Everybody's heard it, right? That women are just difficult. They're just a bit complicated and we don't need to use them for research because they skew all the results because of all those pesky hormones. But it also bleeds into things that are not overly complicated. So we do have uh, examples from things that are actually pretty straightforward. All contraception, for example, is taken by two thirds of cis women aged 20 to 24. Obviously, it's also taken by quite a lot of uh, trans non-binary people, trans men, um, for various different reasons. Um, we know that two thirds of, of women aged 20 to 24 take oral contraceptives. Um, they might take it because they want to protect against pregnancy, but they might also take it because of lots of different reasons. It can improve acne, it can um, manage symptoms of polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis and PMS. Um, it can help give you more predictable periods if you have irregular periods um, and it can help with all sorts of other different things. Um, and there's lots of benefits to taking the pill for lots of different people. Of course, for trans men, it can mean that they, they don't have to think about the dys dysphoria around having periods. For cis women who just don't want the bother of having periods, they can regulate their periods in a particular, in a particular way. So it's really useful for lots of different reasons. There are some downsides, of course. It can increase your blood pressure, and so you often have to have blood pressure checks every uh, six months or so. 
Um, it's not a barrier method of protection, so it doesn't protect you against STIs. Um, if you are taking it multiple months in a row, you can start to get bleeding and spotting, and that's also common when you first start taking the pill. And there can be uh, issues with uh, it increasing your risk of blood clotting or ca breast cancer. Um, and again, there are ways that they can check to make sure that you're not at risk of those. If you're at high risk of those, then you wouldn't um, take the combined oral contraception pill. Um, but there are lots of benefits. What many people might not know is that, so obviously anybody who takes the pill knows this, that there are lots of different types of pill and that they work in lots of different ways. But what, what many people who don't take the pill might not realize is that there are lots of different types of pill that are taken in lots of different ways. Um, one of the more common ones, so the, the combined hormonal contraceptive pill that I'm talking about today, um, this is a, a cyclical medication. You take it for three weeks every day for 21 days, and then you take a seven-day break, and then you resume taking the, the pill. There are other pills where you will take 21 days of a uh, pill, seven days of a placebo pill, and then go back on to the 21 days of a pill. But in this case, I'm talking about uh, these three weeks that you take them and one week off. And this has been around for a long time. Um, oral, this hormonal contraception was invented um, in the 1950s um, by these five people uh, that were involved in it. So we've got um, scientists in Pincus and Chang. And we've got the, the bank rollers of uh, McCormick and Sanger who brought in the money and uh, Rock, who was a medical doctor. And the trials began in 1954. And early in those trials, um, they were testing it in women who were trying to conceive because they thought they had evidence that stopping ovulation for a period of time would help. So if we stop ovulation, that might help women who are trying to conceive. And I think that emotional connection is really important. The people who were involved in this trial were trying to have babies and for whatever reason might have been struggling to conceive. And so they were trialing this uh, test to give them uh, to stop ovulation to see if that would help them to conceive. They used particularly high hormone levels in the early tests. So the side effects were quite significant and they were quite similar to early pregnancy. So the women who were taking the pill kind of felt like they had early pregnancy symptoms. And at first they took the pill every single day. And the combination of the emotional connection that this was women who were trying to conceive, the combination of the high hormones to so the early pregnancy symptoms and the lack of the monthly bleed meant that women in the trial were getting excited, were getting their hopes up that they thought they might be pregnant. So to help try and reassure the women that they weren't having pregnancy, um, they introduced a seven day break so that they would have a monthly bleed so that the women knew for sure that they were not pregnant because the doctors didn't ethically want the women to get their hopes up um, if, if that was uh, uh, not what was going to be happening. So that's why the break was initially introduced. It was introduced to reassure women taking the pill that they weren't, that they weren't pregnant, basically. Years later, so we now know that we've known for decades that it is perfectly safe to take the contraceptive pill every single day with no break. Um, and in fact, many gynecologists recommend it for people with particular conditions. But it took 60 years um, for the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health to change guidance 
on the combined hormonal contraceptive pill um, use for, for various people. At that point, they introduced, so this was uh, only in 2019, they introduced a recommendation that it was possible for people taking the combined hormonal contraceptive pill to take it every single day without a break. So they updated their um, standard regimen and said that there were different ways you could take it. You could use standard use. You could take it for 25 days um, and have a seven-day break. Or you could have uh, tailored use. So you could have um, 21 days with a four-day break, so a shorter break. You could have extended use. So this was already uh, routinely used by lots of people. You could um, tricycle, so you could take three in a row three packs in a row, so nine weeks worth of contraceptive pill, and then a four or a seven day break. That you could have flexible extended use. So you take it for as many days as it takes for you to have a breakthrough bleed. So some people, if they take the pill for a really long period of time, they start to get spotting. And if they get spotting, then they would take a four day break. Um, or you can take it continually. You can take it every single day. And depending on the method that you use and your particular body, because it all depends. For some people, they will never have a period. Some people might have the spotting, might then choose to take breaks, but some people will never have a period. And that's completely fine. That's an active choice that people can make and has always been a choice that is medically reasonable for people to take, but has not been recommended for 60 years because we've just kind of gone with, with what was what was routine, what was known. And in fact, um, I take my contraceptive pill routinely, um, everyday use. And even still, if I mention that to a doctor, to a GP, they might frown and say, are you sure you should be doing that? Until I tell them it's okay, my gynecologist told me to. So it's, there's a lot of people who think, who believe that this break is essential. It is essential for women to have a period or, or, you know, I think one of the important things here is to remember that for trans men, ha not having a period can be really important and, and taking these pills can be really useful for, for some people um, if they don't want to go down other treatment options. So why one thing that I thought was really interesting was how this was reported. So this was reported, uh, say, around 2019, when um, this change was first introduced. And it was reported like this, um, that the way you take the pill has more to do with the Pope than your health. And they said that uh, another article said contraceptive pill could be taken every day of the month after scientists dismissed the Pope rule. So for some reason, this is being linked to the Pope. It was the, the Pope was the reason that you couldn't have, uh, you couldn't take your monthly break. Uh, you couldn't skip your monthly break, sorry. So where does the Pope come in? The Pope comes in because John Rock, who was a doctor, um, wanted to encourage um, anybody to take this pill as birth control if they so chose to, if they wanted to. And he wrote... Uh, a pamphlet about, um, so it's the time has come, a Catholic doctor's proposals to end the battle over birth control. He made the case that the contraceptive pill, because it didn't change the normal cycle of things, was reasonable for Catholics to use as a method of birth control, just as at the time it was reasonable, it was said that it was reasonable for um, uh, Catholic people to use uh, other forms of birth control that were more natural. So kind of uh, your um, rhythm method 
where you're not having sex at times that you know that you might be fertile. Um, and this is where it came in. And it came in that the Pope was the reason that uh, we had to have our monthly periods. And uh, it's taken 60 years to overturn the Pope. Um, it actually has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that we just haven't questioned it. We haven't questioned it because it's not that significant because it affects women. And um, never mind the fact that so many, this affects so many people's lives. So many people take the hormonal contraceptive pill. So hopefully what I've shown you so far is that um, women are, often have things like subjective health conditions like being more prone to chronic pain, as we talked about. Um, and subjective health conditions are subject to lots of different types of bias that people don't believe them. There's loads more I could talk about on this. There's, there's the idea that people with subjective health conditions are faking or lying or all sorts of issues. Um, there's a lot of bias in there. <laughs> but... Um, I can't go into everything. Um, I've shown you hopefully that women are subject to both medical and research bias, that we don't research enough things that, that affect um, women or people with particular types of anatomy, probably largely because we consider those people women uh, socially, even though they might not be women. Um, and so that affects uh, our, the, the way we um, stigmatize people. Of course, there are other things that I could talk about here in that women are, are subject to a range of different social pressures and particular work-life pressures. And that, uh, again, could be an entire talk in and of itself. Um, but <laughs> safe to say that um, there are lots of pieces of evidence that suggest that women, uh, since entering the workforce in a more consistent way, are still carrying a lot of the weight in terms of um, home cleaning and childcare and care, other caring responsibilities and are carrying a lot of weight. This has led to a situation where we've got a lot of stress and there are lots of articles talking about how there's a lot of stress. I mean, everybody's stressed, right? Everybody is stressed. It's not just women, but um, women have particular pressures that are uh, that are kind of influencing the level of stress that they're experiencing and how that is affecting their, their ability to function. And then we have this idea that uh, if you want to function, if you want to be successful in your career, if you want to be well and healthy and not burnt out and be doing the best that you can, you have to take control. You are a girl boss. You are uh, taking control of the situation and taking control for yourself. So it absolutely makes sense that there are a bunch of different um, companies and uh, therapies and different interventions that are targeted at giving control back to women, giving them the ability to take control for themselves. So if we stick with the contraception that we were talking about, here's an example um, of uh, an app that was really functioning uh, functioning to give women control of their birth control. If you were struggling with hormones, if you, di if you didn't want to use the other forms available to you, you could use natural cycles. So natural cycles is essentially the rhythm method. Um, you measure your temperature daily, you um, input it into the app, 
and it gives you uh, green or red days. So green days, you're not fertile, you can have as much sex as you want and you're not likely to get pregnant. And red days, you're either fertile or could be fertile, possibly. They kind of err on the side of caution. And actually, these methods are reasonably um, reliable in some circumstances. So they don't, they absolutely don't work for people who have irregular periods and they don't work in lots of different cases, but for some people they are quite effective. Um, but there are lots of reasons why there are lots of problems and there are all over Reddit, there are things like uh, people talking about their natural cycles, babies, because many people who use this uh, method go on to become pregnant. And to be fair to natural cycles, they do kind of pitch it as if you're somebody who might be thinking about conceiving in the next few years anyway, it could be an option for you. Um, it's not for somebody who, who wants to be um, absolutely certain that they're never going to get pregnant. Um, so this is this is exactly what they show. They show um, the not f fertile green or red for when they think you should use protection or abstain from sex. Um, and of course, they, they then compare the different effectiveness. So they say the contraceptive pill is about 93% effective. Um, the vaginal ring is about 93% protective. The IUD, both hormonal and copper, is pretty high in terms of its protectiveness. So it's 99% for each. The male condom is 87% effective. And as I say, na na natural cycles about the same as the contraceptive pill, according to them. The problem is that it doesn't necessarily account for what people do if natural cycles gives them a red day. So if you get a red day, and if you're uh, not taking your temperature every single day at exactly the same time, which is what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to do, you will get lots of red days because it airs on the side of caution. If it can't be certain, uh, if it can't be sure, um, it will give you more red days. If you're getting lots and lots of red days, then you're going to turn to the condom because the other options are long-term options. The vaginal ring, um, IEDs, uh, actually the vaginal ring is not long-term. That is, no, the vaginal ring is long-term. I'm thinking of vaginal um, barrier methods are <laughs> short-term. So they're not even on here. You could use um, either the female or the male condom basically. And um, the vaginal ring is longer term, the contraceptive pill is longer term. You're not going to take those longer term methods. You're going to turn to condoms because that's the option that's available to you. Or you might just chance it because you've, um, you're probably not fertile today, right? Because you've had like 10 red days in a row. So you're probably fine, right? Um, so people are more likely to be a little less cautious um, because Humans are humans and they're more likely to, to make mistakes like that. Um, in fact, natural cycles ended up being uh, in trouble uh, with the ASA for uh, clay, misleading claims because they really had said that this is a highly accurate contraceptive and hadn't made it clear enough that there are cases where this isn't suitable for people where um, there are problems with using this method. This method works for some people, but it does, it's not for everybody. And there are cases where um, different things can, can skew that um, and they got into trouble for that. And of course, that's, that's a kind of med 
FemMed app, but there are there are also your kind of hardcore wellness industry people. So this is where we we get on to Goop. Um, so Goop, for those who don't know, is a company run by Gwyneth Paltrow. It is it has become massive. I think it started as a blog, and now they've got a podcast, they've got a TV show. They're kind of this massive, massive. Um, conglomerates, really. They've got so many different things going on. Um, but one of the things that that caught my eye was uh, many years ago now, so this is pre-2018, um, they were selling this yoni egg, um, a rose quartz egg-shaped uh, item that was designed for you to put inside your vagina. And they claimed that it had feminine energy of nourishment and comfort, that um, it dissolved emotional wounds, fears and resentment, that it opens and gives, opens to give and receive love and that it helps tone your muscles. So the idea was to hold this egg inside your vagina for long, long periods of time and that it would help tone the muscles that allow you to rhythmically contract during orgasm, cause clitoral erection during arousal and to support the uterus and rectum. And in fact, they claimed that it would balance the hormones, regulate menstrual cycles, prevent uterine uh, prolapse and increase bladder control. So this was, these were the claims that they were making pre-2018. Now, this is not to say that strengthening muscles is not useful um, in the vagina, um, that we Many people from many different conditions, many medical professionals from many different conditions will recommend Kegel exercises. But one of the key things about Kegel exercises is this idea that you need to train your muscles to both contract and relax. This is not just about holding on to an egg for hours at a time. This is about contracting for a period of time and relaxing. So we can do Kegel exercises where we tighten our muscles either around a thing like these are um, uh, Kegel balls that you can tighten your muscles around or you can do it without anything. You can just tighten them for yourself. Um, and you might do this for 10 seconds at a time, 10 seconds off, 10 seconds on for 10 rounds up to 15 minutes. You don't need to be doing it any more than that. And in fact, overly tensing your muscles can cause problems like vulvodynia that we talked about earlier or like other conditions that are caused by this um, uh, inappropriate contraction of our vaginal muscles that can cause difficulty with lots of different things including penetrative sex and um, the use of tampons and things like that. This of course was a was a big problem and um, Goop ended up uh, in a big lawsuit and had to pay $145,000 for the the claims they had made about these eggs. They do, however, still sell the eggs. And this is quite an old screenshot, um, but I did look at their website again today and they're selling them for $66 um, and with the same claims. So although this is a slightly old screenshot, this this is pretty much still what they're saying. So they say that Yoni, Eggs harness the power of energy work, crystal healing in a Kegel-like physical practice. Insert the egg into your vagina and feel the connection with your body by squeezing and releasing the egg. Now, there are still problems with using um, particular materials like this for using um, 
these eggs. So yes, it can cause problems with uh, inappropriate contraction. But one of the other big problems with these is that these um, quartz and various different crystals are porous. And so they can hold on to bacteria. And you're then putting your uh, egg into your vagina where you have uh, a warm condition, a warm environment that is perfect for uh, bacteria to grow out of control and cause uh, bacterial vaginosis and various other conditions that you do not want. So highly do not recommend um, <laughs> these sorts of things, even if you're just using them for, for Kegel exercises you can do you can buy skin safe silicon products from various different sex toy websites and use those if you want to use a device if you're having health problems and you want to use so you want to do kegel exercises because you think that you have a condition that's causing you pain you can see a gynecologist and they might well refer you for physiotherapy and you might get dilators or other other devices that you can use for um supported exercises you don't need to be buying uh, really expensive and potentially harmful um, crystal eggs. But I think what's really interesting is that in the last few years, um, Goop have started to move towards this kind of science idea. So they have this science and regulatory wellness portal um, these days where they're talking about that they will test the safety of products and they will test the efficacy of products. And they also have this Goop PhD where they share thoroughly researched health information and where they're talking about the science behind the things that they sell. There's a lot of this in the wellness world these days where uh, wellness companies and practitioners use science to try and justify their beliefs in their products. Um, and that can be really hard for people who aren't I mean, it can be hard for, for people who aren't scientifically qualified in that specific area, but are scientists, let alone for people who aren't scientifically qualified in any area, to read some of this research and really understand what it might mean. Um, and I think the idea that this they're empowering you by giving you the information to make a decision is a misnomer because actually it's not empowering to have information that isn't accessible for you. Um, that information should be provided in a way that, that really gives you what you need to know to make decisions for yourself. So these are some of the other things that I've found on the Goop website over the years. Um, again, these are all slightly older screenshots, probably from about 2019, um, but there's things talking about the jade egg practice and more jade egg um, articles about how to use them and herbs and supplements that you can take for PMS. And of course, Goop have become um, just the go-to for, for these sorts of products. It's not like wellness hasn't existed before. Wellness has existed for probably hundreds of years, but um, it really is having a moment right now. And I don't think that's in, in no small part because of the popularity of Goop, as well as other kind of US-based wellness um, industries. Um, but I think it's interesting to really understand the difference between um, how different practitioners and different um, wellness uh, innovators, if you like, 
talk about wellness. So um, Gwyneth has said in an, in an interview for the New York Times in 2018 that we want to always be moving culture forward with what we do in the content and in the offerings and also create conversations and forums to help eliminate shame. I think a lot of women experience a lot of shame in their lives. The more we talk about things that are sometimes uncomfortable, that are sometimes unknown, it might resonate with somebody and then we might help them shed a little bit of that feeling. And this is a point at which I fully agree with Gwyneth Paltrow 100%. I think we do have a lot of shame, particularly around topics that affect our anatomy and that affect our bodies. There's a lot of shame around those things, particularly things that are considered uh, taboo or, or sex, sexual or dirty in lots of ways. Um, and so we don't talk about them and that can cause problems and people don't seek the support that they need for conditions because they're ashamed of them. And that I applaud wanting to try and eliminate shame. I think that's really important. Um, but I think Gwyneth Paltrow is also a very savvy businesswoman. So she also said in a, in a different interview for the Evening Standard in January 2019, people give me a lot of shit and then they just follow along. I've often somehow had a sense of where things are going in this space and gone towards it and people have followed. That's why I stopped. it stopped worrying me or hurting my feelings when I get shit because I'm like, I know where this is going. The louder they shout, the quicker they adopt. So she really sees herself as a trailblazer and she absolutely is a trailblazer. She really has clearly got a sense of where things are going in this space and has managed to bring people along with her. Um, but I think it is really important to recognise that I, I absolutely believe that Gwyneth Paltrow believes in the things that she sells and that she um, that she does believe in empowering women and giving them the support and space to to grow. But I also recognize that she's a very savvy businesswoman who who wants to make money because she wants her business to do well and to thrive. But it's not just um, the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world who are uh, targeting, uh, selling things to women or people with vaginas. So this is a thing that was around um, quite a few years ago now. And I, I hope this is something that's died out a little bit. This is womb detoxing. So this was uh, the idea that you could put these little tea bags or pearls um, inside your vagina to clean it out. The vagina cleans itself. You don't need to put anything inside it to clean it. You don't need to use special products for it. Just some mild soap to wash your external parts is completely fine. Um, you don't need to uh, clean inside the vagina um, and you don't need to use any special products. And that goes for um, stuff that the beauty industry sells as well. That goes for special vulval washers and vulval deodorants and anything that is used to clean the vulval area a mild soap all plain water is perfectly fine but these people claimed that you could put these herb balls into your vagina to clean it out and they uh, had these um, ingredients that they claimed would strengthen the uterus kill parasites and relieve itching um, they said that they would stop hot flashes and remove toxins regulate menstruation and reduce pain and clear the mind um, don't Google these things. These things are not pleasant. So these have got quite caustic ingredients in them. So if you put them in your vagina and you keep them in there for a few days, which is what is, is usually recommended, um, they start to slough off pieces of skin and tissue from inside the vagina. And then that comes out with the, um, the, the little tea bag. And that is 
really unpleasant and people will share their photos of what's come out of these uh, come out of their vagina thinking that this this is all the toxins that have been pulled out and it really isn't and it's really dangerous and it's not pleasant this this can increase your risk of um yeast infections and bacterial vaginosis but it can also cause pain and and, and increase your risk of other other infections and conditions as well because you've got um skin that is now damaged in some way and then there are other wellness things that have become actually quite um, popular. So things like uh, this is called vaginal steaming. I don't think it really is vaginal steaming. I think it's more vulval steaming. Um, but it's the you sit on these little seats over a bowl of steaming water and they claim that it reduces stress, depression, hemorrhoids, infections, infertility, hormone imbalances, headaches, fatigue, digestive issues and generalized pain. Um, for many of those, it's absolutely not going to help at all. I imagine it might help a little bit. It might help you feel a bit better if you've got hemorrhoids, but so does um, sitting in some warm, hot water um, to, you know, the, the common advice is to bathe frequently if you've got hemorrhoids that are causing you discomfort because that will help soothe them and keep the area clean. You don't need to steam them. And in fact, um, steaming can cause burning. And there, there have been cases of people who've burned themselves from sitting over these steaming bowls. So I've been going a little while now. Um, I'm going to summarise. Um, I've talked about lots of different things here, but hopefully what I've given you a sense of it is that there is a lot of stuff out there that is both putting pressure onto women or people with particular um, uh, genitals uh, and uh, reproductive systems and there is a lot of external pressure that comes on onto people. If you are experiencing symptoms, there's a lot of social stigma. There's a lot of um, ideas that will make you feel ashamed and uncomfortable to see your doctor. And if you do see your doctor, you are more likely to be subject to medical bias um, if you are presenting as a woman. Um, there are lots of ways in which this affects people. And I think it really causes this gap in what is available for women who are under pressure, who are under social stresses and, and work-based stresses and all the other stresses that we're commonly under. Um, and there is this gap that means that women aren't getting the support that they need. And that gap is very readily filled by the wellness industry, um, claiming to give women autonomy, claiming to empower women, give them the space to to make themselves well. And, and we, I, you know, I could talk for hours on all the different things that are there for women to take control and to make their lives better. And often with, with bogus claims that are just not actually going to help. Um, I think this is a big issue. It's not just a big issue for women. It is starting to creep into, into men's spaces as well. Wellness is really starting to take root in, uh, there are wellness companies targeted at men's issues. There are um, wellness things creeping into different exercise and sports and various different spaces. It is everywhere, but it's, it's really a step, taken root uh, in targeting women. So just to finish up, um, I am going to plug QED. Um, hopefully everybody in the chat here um, 
already knows about QED, already is planning to get their tickets on Monday when they go uh, on sale at 6pm BST. But just to sell it, if you haven't heard about it before, and um, this is a massive sceptical conference, there will be people talking about things like this. Um, but there will be also people talking about conspiracy theories and various different topics that are relate relevant to those of us with a sceptical interest. Um, so please do look out for the tickets going on sale on Monday. Um, and uh, if you want to find me in all of the places, I am in all of the sceptical places. I probably should do a bit less. Um, but you can find me at the Merseyside Skeptic Society on Skeptics with a K podcast um, and writing for the Skeptic. You can find me on Twitter. I think I have the same handle on Mastodon, though I don't use it very much. Um, and of course, I'm here at Skeptics in the Pub online and uh, co-running QED. Thank you very much. everybody i hope you're suitably refreshed and thank you so much for all the excellent questions that you've been putting in um i think we'll just get straight on with it then and oh uh traditional question coming up first do you own any pets and may we fawn over them I do have pets. I have two dogs, um, Lupin, who is an incredibly naughty Boston Terrier crossed with a pug. He's got all the energy of a Boston Terrier, all the stubbornness of a pug. He's completely ugly but adorable very very always has his tongue hanging out maybe one of the techs can pop up a little dog lupin um pop up that i think they've got knocking around unless they've unless they've uh, got rid of it these days um so that's my first dog and my second dog is micah who is a dachshund black and tan dachshund who is very classic dachshund in that she's terrified of everything and therefore very shouty and barks at everything which is why the two of them given that one is very naughty and one is very loud are not in this room they're in the other room but maybe i'll pop into the um pub later and uh show them off to you there if, if people are interested in seeing them excellent we'll have to join you in, uh, yeah just quick note everybody join us in the pub <laughs> um and the next question comes from carrie uh Carrie Poppy, since chronic pain is bidirectional with depression, is there any role for clinical scepticism? Could we be mislabeling this kind of discretion as bias? So I think um, absolutely chronic pain and, and depression are bidirectional. Um, many people with chronic pain go on to get depression because it is very difficult living with chronic pain. Many people with depression have chronic pain as a symptom of their depression and it can be very hard to tease those things apart. Um, I, I read this question during the break and I wasn't fully sure exactly what Carrie was asking, but um, uh, one of our techs pointed out to me, Matty pointed out that it happened during a conversation where I'd mentioned that people are given antidepressants for vulvodynia and that people have made the mistake that this meant that they, their vagina has depression. Um, and I think the important thing just to note on that is when uh, antidepressants are given for chronic pain, which they are sometimes, it's usually tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline, and it's given in such low doses that it does not have any antidepressant effect. It is only given as a pain modifier. Now, absolutely pain and depression go hand in hand. Chronic pain and depression go hand in hand. It's really common. But I think it's important for patients as well to recognize that, yes, you might have depression and that might amplify your experience of pain. But if you're experiencing chronic pain, you don't want a doctor who says to you, 
oh, that's that's just the depression. There's nothing to worry about. You want somebody who takes that pain seriously and helps you investigate the cause of it and and identify tools that you can use to manage it. Um, especially if you didn't feel like you ha- were experiencing depression before you experienced that pain, um, because you want to get to the bottom of it. And it's so frustrating to feel like you're being fobbed off with something that's all in your head, even though that's not what depression is. And and doctors could tactfully raise it as something that is absolutely very relevant, um, but it needs to be raised tactfully for patients who are often feeling quite dismissed or or quite um, uh, like they're not being heard by the medical professionals. So it's really complicated and there's loads of nuance in there. Yeah, if, if you're if you're depressed and having pain, you're still having pain and you need something done about that pain. And if the depression's contributing to the pain, you're still having pain and you want yeah. something done about that pain, basically. Yeah. Um, and there may be different ways of doing it, but you still want sorry, I'm going on about this, you still want something done. Yeah. Um right. next question uh, is from Igor, who asks, uh, is there something the general public thinks of as woo but actually works? Or is it always the other way around? I think there are definitely things that we think of as woo that that actually work. Um, And then there are lots of things that we think work that are actually woo. And then there's things in between that kind of maybe help a bit for some people, but don't help for everybody. Um, And it's hard to think of any specific examples. When I was chatting in the back room before, um, Uh, someone suggested vitamin D which I think is a good one we often are very skeptical about supplements but certainly in the UK in some months of the year it is worth taking a vitamin D supplement because vitamin D deficiency is more common than we think when we don't have the the light here Um, and then there are other things that we know can be helpful for some things in some cases that we don't want to believe are helpful for some things in some cases like good sleep hygiene might well help um people with sleep issues but equally sleep issues can be caused by lots of different things and good sleep hygiene might not help at all so it's as always very complicated the yeah the next question actually is a really important one it's from gray the earthling and um, they ask do you think that women not being taken seriously by medical professions has led to more opportunity for bogus health products to target women in particular I think so. So this 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 is kind of why I've put together this talk. This is kind of the crux of it all is that I think um, I think wellness is particularly targeting women and various different bogus companies, but uh, bogus uh, treatments do target women in particular. And there are lots of reasons for this. Um, and hopefully I've illustrated some of them in the talk. But there is a big issue with either medical bias or just the kinds of conditions that women go to the doctors with are more likely to be dismissed. So it can be a disability bias, a subjective condition bias. It can be various different biases that mean that the culminate in women feeling like they're not getting the support that they need from their medical professions and they're looking for something else. They're looking for somebody who can listen um, and really take them seriously and offer them something um, that, that they believe will help them and that is being sold to them as as working so yes I absolutely think it contributes and I think it's it's really important to recognize and it's something that I'm I'm I think our doctors in the UK are fantastic we have some brilliant doctors um, and we have some doctors who maybe have some slightly old-fashioned views or old-fashioned biases um, 
and there are problems within the system that open us up to issues and some of it comes from doctors being massively overworked and under-supported. I am absolutely not giving a talk bashing our wonderful um, medical professionals. But these, these little issues that creep in do mean that it's the marginalised people in our societies who are not getting the healthcare that they need and are looking for another solution. Yeah, the, it's certainly a huge frustration, isn't it, amongst GPs, this 10-minute consultation for something really complicated. And when someone gets an hour with an alternative practitioner, they're bound to feel better about that. You get you get an hour where somebody is listening to you. I, in fact, I spoke to um, Britt Hermes as part of the QED conference last year. We did a panel on, on wellness and the wellness industry, and she talked about how um, she would give when she was an alternative practitioner, as she was before she became a skeptic, she would give 90-minute consultations to patients. And that's that's 90 minutes of talking to somebody solely about the things that have been bothering you and the things that are making you feel rubbish. And having somebody listen to you and offer you sympathy and support and solutions and make you feel like it's it's all going to get better. And that's, we mustn't underestimate the value of that for people. And if we can find a way to give that to people without it coming from somebody selling something that doesn't work, then that would be brilliant. All right. And um, next question's from um, the Ubiquitous Anonymous, uh, who asks, um, will more female researchers and practitioners help? Or is the issue more structural and cultural? I think it does help to a degree, and we do need to tackle um, uh, equality in all of these professions and have more women in the professions. Um, we obviously need to then treat those women well, because often women in the workplace are uh, lumbered with a lot of the admin stuff that isn't part of their job, that isn't expected of the men in the same jobs. And so they're often... Uh, walking into burnout quite rapidly because of the expectations that are placed on them, um, which means that they're not going to be giving the best care to their patients because they're burnt out. But equally, some of this is structural. Some of this is is baked into the education that we have and, and um, the kind of common uh, shortcuts that the doctors will use and have to use if they've only got 10 minute consultations where they will make the assumption that the condition presented to them is the most common condition because it's much quicker to to make that assumption um, and those kinds of difficulties are kind of they're not baked into the system in that they're insurmountable I think we can break that down but it has to be actively concertedly broken down and I think there are efforts being made to do that certainly when I see a junior doctor of any gender that the, the changes are really obvious the way that they talk to patients is very different and there's a lot more collaboration between patient and doctor um, rather than this kind of prescriptive idea that I will tell you what is wrong with you and you will do what I tell you to do to treat it um, so, and, and that's really helpful for patients particularly with subjective conditions um, to feel heard and listened to. Yeah, you you made me think that there's um, when you were saying about think the common things the the what's the phrase when you hear hooves think horses not zebras and but it's what I've noticed is people coming out of the doctor saying well they've they've tried that and it didn't work so you know it's pointless going back and somewhere there's a, a number of people in that time frame not getting across the message this is my plan A 
if it doesn't work, I have a plan B, C, D, and E. Come back and talk to me about them because so many people drift off at that point. And that well, and that's absolutely a problem that I encounter as a patient who engages with the healthcare system quite a lot. If I have a new symptom that I'm concerned about, as somebody with chronic ill health. I get new symptoms all the time. Sometimes I think, well, this is probably this and I kind of self-manage. And sometimes I think this is something I'm concerned about and see a doctor about it. And they will often order particular tests. And then I will get a text message from uh, the testing service saying, well, your tests came back normal and no follow-up. It's like, well, okay, well, if they came back normal, I now need a follow-up because I still have the symptoms and no reason for them. But at that point, a really good doctor will then call you up and say, I've had your test results back. They look normal, so we need to do further tests. But if you're really busy and you don't have the space to do that for every patient, it might be, well, I'll wait until they come back. And by that point, it's taken so many weeks and maybe you're in a bit of an ebb uh, of your condition and, and the symptoms are a little bit better and it's a bit of a pain to get to the GP and see, see a doctor. So you write it off for a few weeks and then it flares up again, you go back, they do those original tests because it's now been a while since you had them done and you're in the same circle. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere we need to get that into medical training, don't we? Because you, you're taught, you you taught differential diagnosis. It could be this. If it's not, then it's this or this or this or this or this. Yeah. But that message isn't, is, is getting lost. And so people are losing faith saying, well, didn't work. Oh, they're offering me a 90-minute consultation. Yeah. And that's sad. Um. So uh, another question from Anonymous, same or different one. They ask, uh, I find it interesting to hear that only 10% of cis women have endometriosis because I feel it's like about 50% of my women's friends. Um, any thoughts? Um, it, it's really hard to measure prevalence of, of conditions, particularly conditions that aren't very well diagnosed. And in fact, um, just coming back to Cleo's point before about um, zebras versus horses, it's a common phrase that's taught in medical school. If you hear who hoof beats you assume horse not zebra I have one of the conditions that is canonically uh, taught as a zebra is taught as a, a very rare condition um, but there's more more recently there's evidence that actually it's it's not a very rare condition it's just that it's massively un, underdiagnosed because it's a condition that has a variety of symptoms and in its most severe is very striking and uh, can be very easily diagnosed, but is is very um, quite severe. But it can also be much milder and have less significant impact on sufferers, and is therefore getting missed as kind of generalised aches and pains and things rather than than the condition that it that it is. Um, and so that that may well be the case for things like endometriosis, where lots and lots of people have pelvic pain symptoms and have symptoms with their periods but they're not tested as frequently and especially with um, endometriosis which the only real diagnostic test we have is keyhole surgery which they don't want to do for everybody um, and they certainly don't want to do in the first instance um, it it can be missed very easily so it may well be higher it it's these studies are quite difficult to do right and will vary from place to place as well because different different things impact different things and there's a follow-up question about endometriosis from someone who says that they were diagnosed with it last year and um, doing their own research there's an awful lot of confusing and even contradictory information about symptoms treatment etc and they ask how can you tell how do you know what's which info is worthwhile 
It is. It's really difficult with lots and lots of long term conditions. It can be really difficult. And and speaking purely as a patient who's gone through those sorts of things and having to identify things. um, I'm not sure I have an easy answer to that. I think finding a medical professional that you trust is really important. And if you're having particular difficulties and you don't think your medical professional is giving you good advice or is taking you seriously, you can ask for second opinions. You can ask to be referred to somebody different and and hopefully get have better luck with somebody else. I've done that a lot throughout my um throughout my life. If I've seen somebody who feels like they're I've had somebody say, oh, well, you know, it's a shame we don't have a homeopathic uh, hospital in Liverpool anymore. And, you know, at at that point, I want to ask to see a different doctor um, and try and get expert advice from somebody who who knows about it. But also trying to look. I know that there's uh, lots of different charities that are involved in endometriosis um, support and things and finding communities that you can interact with can be useful. But there isn't an easy answer, I'm afraid. There's some good some some points there anyway. So uh, next question is from Igor again. Uh, he says, "Is the men is men's woo similarly pre- prevalent? What's more?" And then he asks, uh, "What is a more lucrative industry: dick growing pills or vagina cleansing eggs?" And <laughs> he's very quick with a disclaimer, saying he's not looking to diversify his income, which I find slightly suspicious. But- <laughs> don't know so I don't I don't encounter uh, I don't encounter much of the stuff that's targeting men I do encounter some of it and there is certainly there's a growing wellness industry that is targeting men that's definitely true it's it's smaller than the women's industry but it's it's definitely growing and it's definitely um and especially as we get things like you can get subscriptions for Viagra now and all sorts of things um not that Viagra is a wellness product but getting a subscription over the internet might not be the best way to get go about getting it um but um the specific example of dick growing pills versus jade eggs i would ask and maybe part of this is because you wouldn't admit to it but how many people do you know who bought things from goop and how many people do you know who bought dick growing pills um I think probably one is more prevalent than the other, um, or maybe that's that's the bias of people not talking about one versus the other. Right, yeah. I I, I can't imagine many of my men friends admitting to that, even if they'd done it. <laughs> can't imagine many of my men friends actually doing that, but that's another that's, that's a different point. Um Another question. We could talk all day about taboos that affect men particularly as well, and there are a load of issues there, taboos and biases that affect men. Like this is uh, every group has their own issues, and I'm just focusing on women today, but that doesn't mean that it isn't a problem in men as well. Yeah, do you know that's really interesting? It's it's a shame men couldn't talk about that if they wanted to, but actually, yeah, good point. uh, another question from Carrie, who says, uh, she talks about a study, a 2019 study by Udatech et al. from the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities. Um, she f- says that this study actually found men are labelled malingering more often than women. Uh, so I haven't seen this study, so I can't comment on the particular study at all. But, uh, you know, it, it, there is, there is, of course biases that affect men as well and and anecdotally we all know examples of men who've put off going to see the doctor for something that they're really quite worried about and then they speak to the doctor um, and the doctor dismisses them and they don't get the help that they need that certainly happens for men as well um 
I don't think men are given the tools for talking to doctors um, and are often, there is this kind of social stigma that men don't need to go to doctors and that it's very shameful to go to a doctor's, uh, to see doctors. And I think there is evidence that at least part of that is because men don't want to be seen as a problem or a burden and they don't want to ask for help. So I can imagine that affects the language of how those appointments go and you might downplay your symptoms and that might impact how different conversations go. And I think lots of people do that, um, not just um, men or women, but um, I, I can absolutely imagine there are, there are biases that affect men in healthcare as well. And um, it's about understanding all, all of these different things and how they interplay and how they affect us all differently. It's not a, a one versus the other. Yeah, I, I find that quite surprising that a study would find that that was labelled, men were labelled like that more, because it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It feels like we need a, a bit more looking, you know, when something feels wrong, it, it might be right, of course, but you want to look into it a bit more. I'd need to look at the paper, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm certainly interested to be pointed to it, so I will have a look at it. Thanks, Kerry. And um, this is uh, back a little bit to the subject you talked about earlier, but do you have any rules of thumb for identifying when a health or wellness claim is bogus or too good to be true? This is quite broad because it very much depends on the claim. Um, and I don't think off the top of my head I could give a broad rule of thumb because of that variation, because there's things, there's there's things that might feel like obvious rules of thumb now when I'm talking about specific medications that might not be true when it's a different type of intervention. Like we do know that exercise is useful for lots of things. It shouldn't be the only thing and it should always be taking into consideration a person's ability or disability, but it can exercise can be useful. But I can see a rule of thumb that says, oh, well, if it seems like it's a, a too good to be true or too easy solution, like exercise could be, then it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not not a useful treatment for people so I wouldn't want to give anything too generalized off the top of my head but I think there's there's often words that can really stand out if you encounter um in, uh, interventions from different people so things that are claiming to be the silver bullet that, that say they've got the answer that's probably not going to be the answer um, people who are really evangelizing about their product and that it will cure X, Y, Z and the other thing is um, is really important to, to then dig into a bit more critically because there are very few panaceas. There are basically zero panaceas. Um, there's not going to be something that gives you all of the answers in one go. Um, I think that's the, the biggest rule of thumb. <laughs> You said there are some words. Are there any words that if you saw them on a page, you'd instantly go and hang, you'd go, no, hang on a minute. So some of these come around in trends and I kind of over the years noticed different trends. And it's it, this is how it becomes quite difficult because lots of different um, either wellness industries or or outside of wellness into straight pseudoscience medication type um, therapies will jump onto what a thing that is scientifically correct so they'll take something like it's immuno boosting because we know that the immune system is important and there's quite a lot at the minute we're, we're particularly interested in the immune system at the minute so you will see lots of them who say that it's immune boosting now 
immune boosting is a very clear cause for concern because that particular word that particular phrase is completely meaningless we can't really just boost the immune system in that in that way but when you go into things like immunotherapy well we do have immunotherapies but also it's quite it can be applied to any therapy that affects the immune system and if they claim their therapy is immune boosting well then they can claim it's an immunotherapy and therefore it sounds sciencey but immunotherapies are real. We do have immunotherapies, so they come in trends. You're going to say it's complicated again, aren't it's you? Complicated. <laughs> it's always complicated. <laughs> right. Um, another question from Anonymous, who um, this this particular Anonymous asks, uh, you've touched on differences in pain perception. Uh, can you say more about pain and sex differences? Is it hormonal, estrogen? I cannot say more about that. Um, so we do. We, so we think that um, chronic pain affects women more than men. But in terms of actually identifying how we perceive pain and different ways of perceiving pain is um, very complicated. There's lots of different layers that that layer onto each other. We know that particularly with chronic pain, the whole body system changes in one way or another. So you've got the 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 nerves that receive the pain change and the way that pain travels to your central nervous system changes and your brain will then put signals out into your body that changes. So all of our different, our entire pain structure changes when we're experiencing chronic pain to then add in layers of um, sex differences that are not always super clear and that we're not very, sometimes we like to think that there are big sex differences that actually aren't many of the ones we talk about don't actually exist so it's it's really complicated and the research isn't necessarily just there yet right thanks um another interesting we've got some really interesting questions today is the bias in disease always sex um you're going to say no (laughs) Uh, what other biases might be in effect and uh, they go on to say at least one disorder one disorder i've heard researchers uh, I've heard at least one of at least one dessert order where researchers told that it's boring. So yeah, yeah. And so at the beginning, I said that we do get biases towards um, particular conditions. That there are conditions that are considered um, particularly um, more. Doctors will think they're more likely to be faked, or they're they're more likely to be cries for help, or or various ways in which people are dismissed for having that condition. And that is not just. Uh, women that experience that and that that idea of it being boring will feed into that that there are biases just against some conditions um that are perceived as um more likely to be fake or lies or or anything else so um that's a big problem and of course i already touched on um the fact that other marginalized groups are biased in different ways so conditions that are perceived as affecting people with um from different uh, racial backgrounds might play a role um and of course uh there's all sorts of stuff around pain and and people from different racial backgrounds so it's there's lots of diff- there's there's lots of interplay and there's lots of intersectionality that that has to be considered here yeah um do you know what? i was going to say something i completely you're I've saved everyone because I've forgotten what it was I was going to give. You said something that was really, but it's gone. Um, 
So we'll go on to Igor instead, who asks, um, do you have a long, it doesn't have to be that long, but do you have a long angry rant about some particularly egregious piece of woo? This sounds fun. <laughs> I have far too many. Um, I have an entire talk about cancer stuff where I talk at length about Gerson therapy. Um, I'm not going to bore you with a rant about Gerson therapy right now. Um, I tend to have particular issues with things that are um, really difficult to identify as woo. So like we talked about before, are there any ways to really kind of um, identify the the woo claims because sometimes it's really hard to tell and there are times when I have listeners to the podcast or, or uh, friends in the community who ask me I came across this thing is it woo I can't tell and I look at it and go do you know what I can't tell without doing some deep research into it um, so those are the ones that bug me the most if I'm honest um, particularly if they come from something that is particularly slick and looks like it's a proper medical service um, and there's a few of those I could talk about, but um, there's also, I also have to take a lot of care on the things that I talk about sometimes, because um, sometimes you say things that get you into trouble if uh, if a company who you uh, complain about are not happy with what you've said about them, even if what you've said about them is true. Sometimes company business seems to win out over the truth, and that's horribly, uh, that, that can be true legally, can't it? And I'm sure Carrie Poppy uh, in the chat can talk a lot about that as well with the with the investigations that she does. Uh, next question is slightly sideways, but I thought it might you. I thought you might have an interesting answer to it. So, um, will COVID nineteen, or do you think that COVID nineteen might help us solve some post viral issues? Do you think that we'll find that anything that's not spe- just COVID virus specific uh, could it make progress on cell metabolism disorders? I think it's really interesting. Um, I've been following quite closely the dis. Um, uh, I follow loads of people from the disabled community who talk about disability. I found it really interesting over the last few years seeing how people engage with each other just within that community. New people coming into the disabled community with things like long COVID and post viral conditions, um, and learning about those conditions and talking about those conditions and talking very publicly about their experiences with long COVID and then people with long-term disabilities like ME and other post-viral conditions expressing their frustration that they've been talking about these things for years and felt like they haven't been listened to and now there's new people coming into the community who are not taking their experience into uh, consideration and then seeing people on both sides of that going, do you know what, let's work together. Let's, yeah. let's, let's build this community and we will welcome new people into the community because you're going through something big. And I think what's especially interesting um, is that because there are so many people who are experiencing long COVID and we are talking about it so much, I think it looks like the research is starting to catch up, like we are starting to research these sorts of conditions in more depth. And I really hope that that will lead to breakthroughs, that we will have things that will um, really help us understand post-viral conditions a lot better than we do and will give support to people who know they've got something post-viral but have been told, no, you've just got chronic fatigue syndrome, go away because you just, you've got some subjective condition. Um, hopefully it will help. Yeah, there are already some really interesting possibilities coming out of that research, aren't there? 
I think so, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm very keen to keep watching what happens, but I think it's uh, one of the good things, you know, downside to a major downside is that many, many more people are disabled than were disabled uh, this time a few years ago. But I, I think, I, and I think the number, I, I've, I've read a few interesting articles. I think there was a great one from Ed Young at um, Atlantic probably about uh, medical professionals who've ended up with long COVID who now have a better understanding of how a how people with those conditions are treated to bias because they're experiencing it for themselves but b how it actually feels and how it can affect your ability to function and work um, and hopefully that compassion will start to to spread through the medical community a little bit more as well. Mm. And we're on to the last question. It is fittingly from Igor, who's asked so many. And he asks, so do we have any hope? Is it getting better? I do think we've got hope, at least in the medical bias side of things. Um, I think I think things are getting better. And I've touched on some of these throughout the Q&A that I think when I see uh, young junior doctors, I see... Um, big changes in how junior doctors are communicating with patients and how they're engaging with certain types of health condition. I think that's making a big difference. I've had some brilliant um, experiences with GPs at my local practice more recently, and I think that's changing. And I think we're getting a better idea of other things that might help people, and we're offering things other than just medication and things like pain clinics and um, care in the community type initiatives that hopefully will start to make a difference. So I do think there's some hope on that front. On the wellness front, I am less hopeful. I think wellness is only going to grow. It's going to shift and change into something different. And I think we're getting more and more med tech type type companies that are getting into this space and are starting to produce all sorts of different tools that people really don't need, but are parting with large sums of money to get access to things that are not super valuable to them. So less optimistic on that front. Maybe I should have done those the other way around and ended on a high. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll just pick up. I wasn't going to say this because I didn't want to, to sort of have the last word, but I'm, I will do because it's a bit more positive and it's what you're <laughs> saying. Um, certainly because I've been involved in examining medical students and doing the, you know, when they do an, uh, a brief medical examination of, a, of an actor in front of you and and they are being examined on things that we never were like the way they engage the way they talk about somebody in front some in front of them lots and lots of things so what you are experiencing as a patient I've actually seen in the teaching and that that is very positive it is really positive so Right. So um, sorry to steal your thunder at the end. I do apologise, but I just, you wanted something positive. Okay, well, um, thank you ever so much. Uh, everyone, we will see you next month. And uh, lots of, lo go wild in the chat for uh, Dr. Alice. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, 
where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.